Good morning, my name is Rob Heron, and I'm one of the associate pastors here. Uh, if you are visiting this morning, Redeemer was planted 22 years ago, and we've been going through the book of John about that amount of time. So we're almost through. Be patient. It's honestly been a joy to listen to the preaching of the Gospel of John, to be a part of it. It's here John gives us his account of Jesus' signs and his miracles And ultimately, his death and resurrection is shown forth so that we might believe and have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Here we are in the middle of what's called the farewell discourse, chapters 13 through 17. And Jesus is preparing his disciples for what is coming next. His hour is coming. He's going to the cross to die. But he's also fueling them with comfort because the cross, the sorrow of the cross is not the end of the story. So read with me John 16, 16 through 24. And Jesus says to the disciples, A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, your word is truth, and we need the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would transform our hearts to behold Jesus, our joy, to transform us by our grace so that we would depend on you in our sorrows. And we ask this in your name, amen. It's not good, my dad informed me. His voice over the phone, which throughout so much of my life, most of my life, has been incredibly steady, was shaky. It was full of gravel. He told me that his granddaughter, my niece, had been diagnosed with cancer for the second time in only three years. The doctor said that though the previous treatment had been successful, the tumors now had grown to such an extent that there likely was only weeks left, maybe only days left. So Mary Lee, my wife, and I, we traveled to Nashville where Sophie lives, and we knew at that time that we were going to say goodbye. That's why we were going back. We spent those days with my family simply being in the room with her, being with my dad and Sophie's mom and other family. When it was time for us to leave, my sister asked me to pray for Sophie. And so we laid hands on her 
And my prayer was unbelievably shaky and overwhelmed because of the sorrow. Because of the sorrow. When my dad had told me on the phone that Sophie was diagnosed, I immediately, where I was standing, I just sat on the ground. Immediately sat on the ground. Because this deep sadness filled me. Deep sorrow. The kind of sadness that weighs you down to the dirt. That turns your stomach into knots. That steals your breath. Sorrow. In different ways and in varying degrees, each one of us will face in this life sorrow. And what do we do with it? What do we do with sorrow? In his book, Comfortably Numb, How Psychiatry is Medicating a Nation, author Charles Barber, he argues that there's been an increase over the past 20 or 30 years in medication to soothe sorrow or sadness. That even beyond cases where Medication is needed to treat disease or chemical imbalances or actual trauma. Americans more and more are medicating maybe normal amounts of sadness and sorrow. Along, alongside the reasons why this is the case, Barbara writes that in some ill-defined but nonetheless pervasive way, we have come to feel that we are entitled, no, we are owed happiness. I am owed happiness. I am owed a lack of sorrow. You should be happy, and if you're not, there's a pill that can fix it. But what he argues, ironically, is that with this increase in medication and these potentially cases where it wouldn't be needed, there's been an increase in misery. The misery index has gotten higher and higher in our country. In attempting to avoid sorrow, we've become more miserable. And this highlights a temptation for all of us to avoid sorrow in pursuit of joy. Prescription pills are obviously just one in a list of infinite ways we might seek to avoid sorrow in pursuit of joy. Our addiction to entertainment, social media, alcohol, anything that we would use to bypass sorrow to joy. But the irony is that in this life, there is no joy apart from from sorrow. No joy apart from sorrow. This is exactly what the film Inside Out perfectly depicts in so many ways. When joy attempts to kick sorrow out, there's only misery. We can't manufacture joy because it's deeper than happiness. Joy is the fullness of what we experience in God's kingdom. And there is in this life no joy apart from sorrow. Still, that's not to say that sorrow is somehow the path to joy in itself. Sorrow has no power in itself, as if we should go run and looking for sorrow. So how do we have joy in this life? Jesus gives us the answer in John 16. Because of the cross, sorrow turns to joy. Because of the cross, sorrow turns to joy. I want to unfold this claim in three ways by looking at John 16. We're going to see the sorrow. We're going to see the joy. We're going to see the in-between. The sorrow, the joy, and the in-between. So first, let's look at the sorrow. Jesus tells his disciples in verse 16, if you will look there. 
A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. The response of the disciples, as it has been time and again, is total confusion. And their response in verse 17 and 18 is a repeating, a repetition of Jesus' words. What does he mean, a little while and you will see me no longer? What does he mean by a little while? Verse 18 draws this out very starkly, where they say, we don't know what he's talking about. And their confusion is in part due to the vagueness of Jesus' phrase, a little while, but more so it's due to their lack of a category for a Messiah who would die. Jesus is the Savior of the world. So what sense does it make that he would go away and they would see him no longer? And moreover, in verse 20, he tells them that they will weep and lament while the world rejoices. Isn't the Messiah supposed to be victorious over the world? That is, the world corrupted by sin and evil? Jesus has promised them that he is the bread of life. Whoever believes in him will have living streams pour forth. He's the resurrection and the life. He's promised joy to God's people. So what sense does it make for him to go away? What is this sorrow that the disciples will experience while the world rejoices? I went to college at the University of Tennessee, widely referred to as the Vatican of the South by many, by me. And when I was there my sophomore year, we brought in a new head coach for the football program named Lane Kiffin. And Lane Kiffin is a Hollywood-style, flashy coach. And I was elated when he came to Tennessee. The student body was elated because he was going to bring glory and beat Bama. Sound familiar? (laughs) I'm sorry. Everyone was so excited because he was the one who was going to come and he's going to stick with us and he's going to build us into an a thousand year reign again. He's going to bring us national championships again. But within a year of arriving at Tennessee, Kiffin left for Southern California. I was devastated and so confused. How could he leave us? This was our hope for the joy of national championships. The student body was devastated, sorrowful. They blocked his exit from the stadium and even burned mattresses in front of the stadium because if nothing else, we Tennessee fans have our dignity. So we did that, and he still left. That didn't convince him to stay, apparently. And the, the, whole, uh, the nation's media outlets portrayed this as a kind of joke, which in some ways it is. If you dislike Tennessee football, it's a reason to rejoice. But Tennessee fans wept, at least internally and, and some externally, because their coach, their hope of joy was gone. The woes of Tennessee football relative to the suffering of the world is so small But this highlights that there is no shortage of causes for sorrow in this world. No shortage. Sports, if they can bring us sorrow, how much more can family breakdown, relational dysfunction give us cause for sorrow? Many of you in here have experienced sorrow as Christians. You've experienced sorrow as Christians. Many of you have Experience have been confronted with death. Many of you have seen children suffer. Some of you have seen children walk away from the Lord. There is no shortage for cause of sorrow. 
But the Kiffin story, what it also highlights is what Jesus is saying about the ultimate cause for sorrow. The ultimate cause for sorrow is that we are not yet with him face to face. We do not yet see him fully. We do not yet see him fully in his kingdom. And that is the reason we ultimately have sorrow. That is the reason we ultimately have sorrow. And this is why Christians are to, in a sense, have more sorrow in this life than the rest of the world. Because every individual sorrow we experience directs our hearts to see the ultimate cause of sorrow, that we are not yet with Jesus, not yet fully. This is the ultimate cause of sorrow. Our sorrow is heightened in this life. And for this reason, we must reject any notion that we can bypass sorrow to get to joy. Because how could we ever have full joy in this life when we are not fully in the presence of our hope of joy, which is Jesus? And this is the sorrow that Jesus says we will experience. So first, that is the sorrow, but let's look at the joy. What is the joy Jesus is talking about here? Jesus has told his disciples they will be sorrowful when he goes away. But again in verse 16 he says, Though in a little while they will see him no longer, he tells them, Again a little while and you will see me. They do not understand this here, but after the resurrection his words will be clear. He is going to the cross, he will die, he will be buried, and in three days they will see him again. So the immediate reference of a little while and you will see me is the resurrection. But in light of what he has said about departing and sending the Holy Spirit to comfort his people in his bodily absence, it also seems to be referencing the second coming. The joy arrives in the resurrection, but it comes fully when his people are with him face to face. And he says in verse 20, your sorrow will turn into joy or your sorrow will become joy. So where the resurrection is the arrival of joy, a day is coming in a little while when the fullness of joy will outweigh sorrow. It will overwhelm sorrow. And Jesus gives us a picture in verse 21 to help us understand how it's possible That any joy could outweigh the sorrow of the cross. How could anything outweigh the sorrow of this life for so many of us, for all of us? And in verse 21, he helps us understand by giving the picture of a mother undergoing the birth of a child. He says that when she is in labor, she experiences great sorrow. For her hour has come, the hour of her anguish. But when the child arrives, her sorrow turns to joy. For the joy of a human being arriving in this world. He says in verse 22, in the same way, when Jesus is raised from the dead, when he's raised from the dead, joy will overwhelm their sorrow so that no one and nothing can take it away. When uh, when Mary Lee, my wife, gave birth to our son Robert, her experience was probably no surprise characterized by intense pain. By no fault of the doctors, the epidural was not completely effective, so she felt much during the experience. I asked another mother recently, what what is that experience of childbirth like? And she said, "It's, 
It's like something that you feel you can't bear. I can't bear this. The pain of childbirth is weighty. It's weighty. But when Robert arrived and when he took his first breath, and when they took him and they placed him on Mary Lee's chest so that she could see him and touch him and hold him, feeling his breath against her breath, when she could look at him, the sorrow turned to joy. I have this clear picture in my mind of her continually saying hi, hi to him. As she was in intense anguish, somehow the joy overwhelmed that because she saw her son face to face. Mary Lee, of course, remembered the, the anguish in the sense that if you had asked her right after that, did that hurt? She wouldn't say, I can't remember. She didn't remember in the sense that the sorrow was no longer dominant in her heart. The joy was dominant because the joy was weightier. Truly, the joy outweighed the sorrow. Jesus is promising that joy for Christians, it outweighs sorrow. It's more immense than the sorrow. This in no way denies the weightiness of sorrow in this life. What could outweigh the sorrow of losing a child? What could possibly outweigh the sorrow of miscarriage? Nothing in this life, nothing in this life could possibly be weighty enough to outdo that, to overcome it. And that's Jesus' point. Only Jesus has enough joy to outweigh your sorrow. Only the hope of the resurrection, only the hope of the resurrection that undoes and conquers the sting of death and resurrection, life, and the promise that we will see him face to face, only that is a joy powerful enough, immense enough, heavy enough to undo, outweigh sorrow. Joy is a promise in Christ, which means that it is already and not yet. So first, this joy is future and total fulfillment. We will not experience this joy in its fullness and its complete weight until we see him in the new heavens and new earth in his kingdom and yet it is a sure hope a sure hope so that whatever you experience in this life no matter how miserable and weighty it is experientially none of it can strip away the sure hope of joy that your future is unshakable unbreakable joy in Christ that is your hope That's where you're heading toward joy. But also, Jesus tells us that this joy is present. It's present by the power of the Holy Spirit. That yes, in a little while, he's coming back to wipe away every tear from our eyes. And then more than that, that he will turn our sorrow into joyful laughter, or weeping into laughter. But here in the present... Joy is held out to us, not apart from sorrow, but in the midst of it. Yes, we will experience this in fullness in the future, but joy arrived with the resurrection, which happened in time and space 2,000 years ago. To reiterate, this joy that arrives here in the present, it doesn't mean that there is an immediate end to sorrow. You can ask my wife, and the pain did not end when Robert arrived. 
This is not an immediate end to sorrow. But still, Jesus' promise is there for us. He says, this joy is there for you in total fulfillment in the future. But here and now, in the midst of sorrow, you have joy. So what does that look like? This moves us to the third point. We've seen the sorrow that we do not see Jesus face to face. The joy that he promises and now the in-between. How are we to live between the resurrection and the second coming? How are we to have joy now while sorrow remains? And Jesus tells his disciples in verse 23, On that day you will ask nothing of me. On the day of the resurrection, they will ask nothing. And it, this likely implies that when Jesus is raised from the dead, where they were very confused again and again, they will see clearly that he is the Messiah that conquers sorrow through the cross to bring joy. He is that Messiah. But on the other hand, Jesus, what he's saying has to connect to what comes next in verse 23. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Jesus is saying that they will no longer have to ask Jesus for anything in the way that they have before. In the sense of asking for what has not been given. Now they ask God the Father in Jesus' name for everything and anything that he has already accomplished and has to give to them by his Spirit. The side note. What Jesus is not saying is that you can't pray to Jesus directly. Throughout your day, when you experience sorrow and sadness, it is right to pray, Jesus, help me. And he's not saying that praying in his name is a magic formula that gets an end to sorrow, gets you whatever you want. His point is this, that we have direct access to God the Father because Jesus died for our sins and is with us by his Spirit. And this means that, one, God's people after the resurrection are not to ask for less, but for infinitely more. They are not to go to God in their sorrow less, but infinitely more. And the second thing, that when they ask in Jesus' name, they're asking for what already belongs to them. They are drawing on the joy that Jesus has in himself and has to give to his people because it's their inheritance in heaven. They're asking for what already belongs to them by promise. Joy, not apart from sorrow, but in the midst of it. I mentioned at the beginning that before we were leaving Nashville, my sister asked me to pray for Sophie. And we laid hands on her, when I felt overwhelmed, shaky, stuttering, was confused, and like there was a thousand tons of sorrow weighing me down, that kind of sorrow that weighs you to the dirt. What kind of joy was there in that prayer? I don't even know precisely what I was asking for. The joy certainly wasn't a feeling of happiness. And the joy wasn't even in my knowledge itself of God's promises. The only joy was in the reality of Jesus' presence with me. That he was near to me in my sorrow. That was my joy. That he was with me in the depths, in the dirt. That he was there with me to build me up. To stay with me, to sustain me so that I could continue believing in God's goodness. 
so that I could continue to believing in that prayer that God is who he says he is and to believe that Jesus is with me. That was the joy. Is Jesus with me? In light of this, what are we to do? God calls us to respond to the joy that Jesus has for us with a new prayer and a new posture because Jesus is with us. First, we are to joyfully pray to the God who has already conquered our sorrow. We joyfully pray because we can go to God knowing that he always hears us. He is always near us by his by his spirit in our sorrow, and that he is always at work through our prayers in the midst of that sorrow. I was so tempted, even that moment with Sophie, to give up, give up on prayer. Because what does it really do anyways? Am I, I, I'm so foolish in this, as Sophie is continuing to fight the battle of cancer, and fighting against it. The doctors weren't exactly correct. She's continuing treatment. I don't know exactly how God works through prayers, but he is at work through them. But even so, what difference does it really make? It makes a difference because Jesus is with us. To joyfully pray to the God who's conquered our sorrow doesn't mean to seek to achieve happiness all the time in prayer. It means to go to God because Jesus is our hope of joy. Because where else can we go? Where else can you go with your sorrow? Nowhere weighty enough to outdo it, to overturn it. It means trusting that Jesus is your joy. So that when you pray to him, yes, you're asking God for relief. Asking him to ease your sorrow. But you're also trusting that he is with you and asking him that he would continue to work in your heart to turn you away from false comforts for your sorrow and to turn your heart to direct it to your only hope. To trust that he will wipe every tear from your eye and the joy is yours even now while you wait. And second, we are to take a posture of sorrow directed toward God. Again, we are so tempted to, to bypass sorrow in pursuit of joy. We, we pursue pleasure, numbing agents, binging. What do, we, what do we do when we have this overwhelming sorrow? And Jesus says, you can, you can have a posture directed toward me with all of your sorrow. And what does this look like? One, it looks like uh, going to the body of Christ to be helped in our sorrow, to unburden ourselves of sorrow toward the, to the people in this congregation. What, is there sorrow in your heart that you have not shared with other people, believing for some reason that you have to grit it out on your own? Is there sorrow in your heart that you have not shared with the people of Redeemer because you don't want to be a burden to other people? God has given us one another to be a help in sorrow. But it also, that this posture looks like being willing to enter into the sorrow of others to bear it. To trust that Jesus' joy is weighty enough that I don't have to just say, I've got enough trouble in my life without dealing with the sorrow of other people. To trust that Jesus' joy is weighty enough to sustain us as we care for each other. 
In some cases, it may look like trusting that Jesus' joy is weightier than the sorrow of this world, so you don't have to put the weight of the world on your shoulders. That Jesus is taking care of it. Well, why should we trust Jesus with our sorrows? Isaiah 53, looking forward to Christ, tells us that not only has he borne our sin on the cross, but he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That is who Jesus is. In The Return of the King by J.R.R. Tolkien, he talks about a character named Pippin, and he's looking at the face of Gandalf after he's essentially come back from the dead. And this is the description of what Pippin sees. In the wizard's face, he saw at first only lines of care and sorrow, though as he looked more intently, he perceived that under all there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth. When we look at Jesus, first we see a man of sorrows, the man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, that at the cross he took not only one of you, one of your the load of your sorrow, but the whole weight of Redeemer's sorrows, the whole weight of the world's sorrows, every, every death, every grief, every loss, every disappointment and failure. He took it all upon himself and conquered it by the power of the resurrection, the power of the joy that he has in himself. Jesus is well acquainted with grief, and he is the conqueror of sorrow. He is our king of joy. One day, in a little while, when we see Jesus face to face, we will see the one who has not avoided sorrow on the path to joy, but who has conquered it, taking it upon himself to accomplish and provide every joy to you. For the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross, despising its shame, That through the cross, because of the cross, sorrow will surely turn to joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this word is truth. That you have come to give us joy more and more. To give it to us in fullness. By your spirit as a down payment on the inheritance to come. The joy that you have is weighty enough to comfort us, to sustain us in faith, and to help us to wait for the day when you return. We ask that you would bless each one of us in your name. Amen.